Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, August 24th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Several times, the book of Proverbs will address a son in order to instruct him in the way of wisdom. Today's text is the first such address, as Solomon gives warning against the enticement of sinners who deceptively invite others to participate in their wickedness. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure to be here, nice and safely socially distanced also. That's right. That's right. The, the, the way of wisdom to stay socially distant. Maybe. I don't know. Proverbs, well, I guess we'll see if that, I don't know if our text today has anything to say about that, but perhaps, perhaps somewhere along the line. Yeah, we, we need to through. socially distance from uh, sinners. There we go. There we go. Well, nice, nicely, nicely saved. Physical so, distancing, actually. <laughs> Pastor Roth, we, we've gotten seven verses in to the book of Proverbs. We've seen the main theme of the book of Proverbs in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're dealing with a, just a different sort of literature than we have so far here on Sharper Iron. We've done a lot of narratives. We've seen some epistles. This is really the first taste of wisdom literature that we've gotten. And so it's, it's good to hear more about what kind of literature we're looking at, some of the distinctive features features of this book. Uh, just give us a, an introduction for our text today. Yeah, so substantial portions of Proverbs were written by King Solomon, who, of course, famously received the gift of wisdom from the Lord. And it's interesting to contrast Proverbs with our um, your recently completed series on Judges. That was when there was no king in the land, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. So the Lord, as king of Israel, gave his people the Ten Commandments to guide them as his holy people, and Proverbs is closely connected to the Ten Commandments. Perhaps it can even be considered a sort of commentary on the Decalogue. And uh, this, of course, then mediated to us through King Solomon, who comes generations after uh, the the time of the judges and and restores order to the kingdom. Proverbs also is a great example of uh, distinguishing law and gospel. And this is, I think we can learn a lot about that distinction in the book. And then also, wisdom literature in general is is tailored to various stages and situations in life. For example, Proverbs traditionally has especially been focused on the young. And, and you can just see that on the page, especially in the, the language of talking to my son and bringing him up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Then you got, of course, Ecclesiastes is great for those who've reached middle age and are, you know, jaded and um, you know, dis- disenchanted with uh, the world. And then, of course, Song of Songs is is tailored towards the married couple so that they can delight in one another. And, of course, Job and the Psalms for those who are suffering. Okay, so there's, I mean, there's wisdom literature. I think one of the pitfalls that we could see in the book of Proverbs is to view it very moral, moralistically, as if it's just a bunch of good advice. This is what a moral life looks like. And Certainly there's something to this is what a good life looks like. The life as God designed it. You mentioned a commentary on the Ten Commandments, and that is the life as God designed it. But how do we avoid falling off too far into that moralistic reading? How do we see Christ within this book? Because we know all of Holy Scripture points to him. So how do we see it here in Proverbs? Right. I mean, Jesus, of course, tells us that the entire Old Testament is about him. So if we're not finding Jesus in Proverbs, then we're not looking in the right place, or we're looking at it through the wrong set of lenses. And so approaching it moralistically would be a misunderstanding. I don't want to set us, I don't want to eliminate that aspect of it, because of course, all imitation of Christ is true morality. But at the same time, uh, we need to look at Proverbs as uh, the embodiment of Christ as wisdom. And I want to look at Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This is the uh, intro it for Christmas and it, it's uh, it's a you know it's extremely famous. It's in Handel's Messiah, and I think in this passage we see we can see then Christ as Son of God, Son of David, which of course is the same 
you know, Solomon was son of David as well. We can also then see Christ as wisdom. We can also see Christ as father, which is a very interesting way of looking at him. Um, and as we'll see, the father in, in the Proverbs is talking to a son, and I think we can all look to Jesus as a sort of father as well. So let's listen to this passage, and I'll unpack it a bit. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in that passage, we see wonderful counselor. Well, that, of course, points to divine wisdom. Christ is the divine wisdom. Mighty God talks about his divine nature. We saw him, to us a son is born. Of course, this refers to his human nature as a son of David. Everlasting father. This is then the wisdom in Proverbs who says to us, my son, listen to my word. And then the Prince of Peace, he is the one who's reconciled us with God and he establishes order in his kingdom. So that's where the morality does come in to Proverbs, that it is the orderly life ordered by God's Ten Commandments and commented upon throughout Proverbs. I think the, as you brought, read that Isaiah 9 passage, the way you talk about Christ as everlasting father is helpful. And I think a, a good connection to Proverbs, that is one part of this passage that's always been a bit perplexing to speak of the Son of God as the everlasting father. And we don't want to fall into, we're not falling into any Trinitarian heresies here, of course, but to see how Christ acts in that role as one who bestows the wisdom upon us, who speaks here as, you know, hear my son, as we will hear. I think that's a helpful way of looking at it. So more more things in Proverbs that we're going to see. And again, we've been introduced to this already. You've got wisdom and folly, this contrast in the book of Proverbs. Why do, well, how do we understand that? First of all, what is the difference between wisdom and foolishness in the Proverbs? And, and what does that distinction teach us? I really think this is um, fundamentally the difference between faith and unbelief. And so wisdom being faith, folly being unbelief. And here I think of Psalm 14, and this is uh, the fool says in his heart. And here it's a word that occurs several times in Proverbs. Nabal in Hebrew means complete fool, utter fool. It was Abigail's husband, right, the worthless man. Uh, that's actually his name. You know, he's, he's an utter fool. Um, but anyway, yeah, this, this complete and utter fool, what does he say in his heart? There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So I think this this then shows the two ways. One, the one is seeking after God, understanding his word, trusting in his word, and that's the way of wisdom. The way of utter foolishness is to, the, the, the height of folly is to deny that God exists. Now, I think we also need to apply these words um, to our own hearts. And when Jesus talks about the things in, that come out of our heart, such as sexual immorality you know, covetousness and so on. One of the things he lists is folly, foolishness. And I think there we, we can see that, the, that unbelief or misbelief is something that clings to even Christians' flesh because of our old Adam. And this is what Paul, Paul quotes um, that, that Psalm 14 in Romans 3 in order to utterly wipe us out and show us that we cannot ever be righteous by our own works. He says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've all char- already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he concludes the section. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every may be- mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So through the study of the Proverbs, which show us wisdom and folly, it also, again, the second use of the law shows us our own sin, our own folly, and it shows us that the root of all of our sin really is the foolishness of rejecting the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. That, That distinction between wisdom and folly 
as faith versus unbelief, I think is a helpful corrective to avoid falling into that sort of moralism that we were talking about earlier. It's not simply about, it's not only about, again, we're not, we're not putting this out of, out of the picture entirely, but it's not only about how well do I follow Solomon's Proverbs in my own life, if I can hold my tongue, as we'll see. And, you know, certainly that is a wise way to live, but it's not only that sort of wisdom. It has to come out of the wisdom that is faith in the one true God. And so you've, you've given us the law, Pastor Roth, in terms of how we see that in the book of Proverbs. What about the gospel? Sure. And, and right before I move on to that, I do want to comment that everything that we do is related to faith. Hmm. That is, if I believe that adultery or drunkenness or gluttony is going to be a more blessed thing for me than what the word of the Lord tells me, then of course... I'm going to act in a certain way. So it's it really, our actions are connected to our beliefs. Now, we, we poor, miserable sinners, um, we need a Redeemer, and we need to be made wise unto salvation, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy. So in 1 Corinthians 1, St. Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he concludes the section, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate who does make us wise unto salvation through uh, revealing to us his suffering, death, resurrection, an ascension to prepare a place for us in heaven. And then from that wisdom given to us by grace, then how does that influence the way that we take these Proverbs and then put them into practice, as we've been saying? Yeah, so Paul says in Ephesians 5, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The Proverbs show us the will of the Lord for our lives because they're a commentary on the Ten Commandments, which is the will of God for our lives. With that introduction, then, let's go ahead and take a look at the text. I'm going to just read all of it. There's not there's a couple of places I suppose we could break it, but just, let's read the whole thing to hear it all at once. So this is Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. All right, that was Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 19. Unlike some parts of Proverbs, as we'll see later, this really does all flow together nicely. There are some parts where, as we'll see, when they get to more what you might think of as a proverb, it will seem a little more choppy. This flows together nicely. Now, in the very first verse, we meet one of the the characters of the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs is not a narrative, as we've, you know, like the book of Judges, as you said, has different characters in it, Ehud, Gideon, Samson, and so forth. There aren't there's not a narrative with Proverbs, but there are characters. There are recurring figures that occur, and one of them is my son. This is the first place we meet this character in the book of Proverbs. He's a pretty key figure throughout these first nine chapters particularly. So, Pastor Roth, the words, my son, what exactly do we make of that? Is Solomon talking to his literal son? Is it wider than that? How do we understand this character in the book of Proverbs? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it very well could be that Solomon was talking to one of his, or, you know, was intended to train his son. Um, you know, son can also be kind of um, um, a way of speaking to a, a junior, someone younger than us, right? You know, I, I might say to one of my catechism students, you know, hey, son, 
you know, sunny boy, that sort of thing. Um, so, so it is just simply the instruction from a teacher to a student could be a literal biological son, but as we'll talk about in a minute, it can also be a spiritual son. Now, I do want to highlight the vocation of father and mother for uh, instructing children in the faith. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So by training um, our children in the Proverbs, we're bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And notice the orderliness of those words, discipline. It's not, um, you know, just let them go and do whatever they want, right? We need to have order, structure, and, and, and in order to educate them well. And I'd also highlight the refrain throughout the small catechism, the super, the heading over each of the sections, as the head of the household shall teach in a simple way to the children. Um, and, and, you know, Dr. Luther has some great things to say about, uh, you know, how you should go about doing that, right? Withhold supper from uh, kids that won't, won't learn. No, we wouldn't go that far. But, I mean, he is trying to impress upon both fathers and children the importance of this instruction that needs to be going on in the household on a daily basis. And I'm reminded of his comments. I think it's in the fourth commandment in the large catechism where he speaks to the uselessness of parents who refuse to do this very task, who do not recognize themselves as teachers. And I think with the words, my son, certainly it's broader than the relationship of a biological father and a biological son, or mother and son as well, parents. But we don't want to forget that that is the primary teaching relationship that's given. And and this is true whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Whether the father recognizes his role of teaching his children, he teaches them nonetheless. He will teach them something. The question is, will he teach them what is right, or will he teach them by poor teaching, poor example, Will he teach them what is wrong? And so I, 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 I think we—I don't want to pass, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, Pastor Roth, but I don't want to pass by those words, my son, without recognizing what exactly you're saying, that the father and mother together are to teach their own children. It does expand beyond mm-hmm. that, right? but it starts there. Yep, yep. Yeah, and, and Dr. Lutheran says um, in the Fourth Commandment um, that it's a, a, upon— um, the threat of losing the divine favor mm. <laughs> that uh, we are required to um, teach our children. He says, uh, here, consider now what deadly harm you are doing if you're negligent and fail on your part to bring up your children to usefulness and piety. Consider how you bring upon yourself all sin and wrath, earning hell by your own children, even though you are otherwise pious and holy. I mean, you couldn't say it more strongly than that. Um, but we have a duty and a responsibility and, a, of course, a privilege. Right to teach the faith to our children. Right. I mean, we're talking about what is what is good. Well, this is what the Lord has given in the fourth commandment. And so when he gives, he gives what is good. And, and so to recognize it, again, not as a—certainly there is the place for the warning that Dr. Luther gives, but I think he would also speak of it as well, and certainly we should, as a gift from God Amen. to be able to do yeah. these things. Um, and and we, we dare not neglect it. So with, with that then, so the, the first verse, verse 8, is, is pretty classic, I think, when it comes to the book of Proverbs and just Hebrew poetry in general. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Give us some of the, the features just of the Hebrew poetry that's there. Yeah, the, the way Hebrew poetry often works is to have parallel lines. It's not rhyming like in English. And so in this verse, father's instruction and mother's teaching are to be identical in content. Sometimes you'll have contrast between two lines. Sometimes you'll have amplification. I would take this one here to be identical. Mom and dad are all, they're on the same page, right? They're, they're, they're united in the faith, and they're going to pass this on. And it is an interest, this does raise a very interesting question for the ideal for religious commitments in households continue with that thought? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that it's very very important for uh, couples to, before they even consider getting married, to discuss their their own faith, to, to share their faith with one another, and then to um, plan how, once they bring children into the world, how they're going to raise them. So to be united in heart and mind in faith to the Lord is the ideal. It's 
truly the, the best way. Now, we do not want to make this into an absolute requirement because um, the fact is that sometimes people come to faith after they're married, right? And um, Paul does talk about that a bit in 1 Corinthians 7 when there's a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, and that can be difficult to navigate. But it is very clear, um, starting in Deuteronomy, that there is a danger involved in being yoked to an unbeliever and that oftentimes the unbeliever can pull the, the believer away from the practice of the faith. And uh, this then, of course, is going to have a negative effect on the children as well. For sure. I mean, and just with that, look at what it does to the parallelism if the father's instruction is not the same as your mother's teaching. I mean, that the ideal that is given here, I think, is is what we should see. Not to say that nothing else ever happens, or and certainly not to limit the Lord working good from other situations. We're not saying that. But what is the ideal? What is the Lord giving? This is this is what it is. I also think it's important to see not only are your father's instruction and your mother's teaching, are those are in parallel, but also then the matter of, well, what do you do with those things? Here and forsake not. So this isn't simply a listening once and then I'm done, but it's a holding on to, I'm not going to forsake this. Both of those things are in parallel. They they help us to explain it together. And and again, I mean, you've let's keep talking a little bit about this matter of, of family that's here. It's perhaps a bit tangential, but I think in, in our world today where the matter of family, marriage, children are such widely misunderstood and we've strayed very far from what the Lord has given. It's worth at least a few more minutes. What else do we see here about Christian family life? Yeah, I mean, you see here the the so-called nuclear family is just assumed as the ideal. And that's going to be the best environment for the development of piety and morality. Now, there's plenty of empirical evidence for this as well today. Um, But we as Christians don't even need that sociological research to confirm what we already know from Scripture, that a mom and dad with children is what the Lord wills. It's right there in Genesis chapter 2. Well, Genesis 1 and 2. And, of course, that uh, that occurs before the fall into sin. So we know that the institution of the family is the foundation of society, you know, in, in the Garden of Eden, you've got the first church, the first state, the first family. It's all one thing. And there's a real tendency today to think in terms of the state somehow being above the family. But this is completely wrong. Um, the family is ult- is the fundamental building block of society. It's the way God has um, instituted for children to be reared. And um, it is, you know, for, for Dr. Luther's um, political theory, <laughs> government flows out of family. And and a, and a lot of people today assume that the state is kind of like, has always been there, but it, it, it wasn't. The family was what was there. And then certain functions needed to be consolidated. And that's where the state ends up growing and filling needs. So there's a lot of really useful um, things to reflect upon um, in regards to the relationship between the family and the church and the state by studying the Old Testament and by studying the large catechism. Because there, I think we see some sanity. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I do want to also mention that the nuclear family um, in the ancient world also would include multi generational families, and also would multi generations of, the, of the, the family and household servants as well. And so um, there are difficulties when you do define the nuclear family as just mom and dad and the kids, because um, there was more. Um, sharing responsibilities among other people in the household. And, and it is very difficult for just, you know, a couple to, you know, take care of kids, especially with illnesses and death and things like that. So we do need to recognize that that's one of the functions of the church as well, is that we have a community in which we can, we have shared faith and then um, the shared opportunity to help instruct children and bring them up. Certainly. What what else here? We've got about two or so minutes before the break, Pastor Roth, what else is, is in this verse that we need to see? There's you know words like instruction, teaching. What else do we need to see from this verse? Right. So we've got the don't forsake. So that would be abandon or despise. And this reminds me of the catechism again. We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word. So we hear it and we do it. We also should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities. 
So um, then also extend the fourth commandment out to spiritual fatherhood. And, of course, this is instituted in Mother Church, as Dr. Luther puts it in the large catechism, that the church is the mother that begets and bears all of us by the word. So Mother Church uh, has the pastoral office of spiritual fatherhood to teach us the Father's wisdom in Christ, and Proverbs is an outstanding text for catechizing the flock in godliness. And I would point to 1 Timothy 4. Uh, St. Paul says to Pastor Timothy and to all pastors, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And also James 3, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we have um, the, uh, the, the wisdom of Proverbs being taught to us then in the church um, produces a, f- a harvest of righteousness. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. Going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, August 24th. We're studying Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. We've got Pastor Carl Roth with us. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we left off with verse 8 and verse 9, and verse 9 flows right out of 8. You've got your father's instruction, your mother's teaching that you should hear and forsake not, and then he says the they, that is the instruction and the teaching, they're a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Uh, what's the they? Again, what do we need to understand about the they, the instruction and teaching? And right, then, yeah, so that's the instruction and teaching, and I wanted to make one comment on that word for teaching that's translated teaching in the English Standard Version. That's Torah. That's the Hebrew word Torah. So that's the word that is oftentimes used to stand in for the first five books of the the Bible, the Pentateuch. Or it's translated as law in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Um, I, you know, law is not my favorite translation. Pastor Apple, what do you, can you guess what my favorite translation for this word might be? Oh, man, guess what Pastor Roth is thinking. That's a tough game. I don't particularly care for law either. There are certainly times where I think it is. I I think that either teaching instructions not bad or simply the word God's word. I think could might be not that be a bad yeah. translation sometimes. What's your favorite? Translation? I like doctrine myself. Oh yes, yes doctrine. You, you, okay. Yes. <laughs> what, I what which seminary did you graduate from, Pastor Ross? Oh, that would be Fort Wayne. Very good. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, the Torah is, is God's law and gospel. I mean, and it it can it is a means of grace. Right, it's the word of God, as you said, yeah. and it's um, and and so we see then this garland of grace or great graceful garland is the ESV translation, but but garland of grace, and so the word, the teaching, the instruction is the means of grace that delivers the righteousness of Christ to us, and then that promises us a garland of sorts. The Greek translation of the Old Testament has um, Stephanos for uh, the garland. And that's the word for crown in the New Testament. If your name is Stephen, your name means crown. Um, so you see multiple times in the New Testament this crown of everlasting life, this imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians 9, imperishable wreath, uh, that, uh, that is pointed to. And that, that is a gift of God's grace. So what's, I mean, and then that takes us into the picture. I think doctrine is a good translation, too. It really is. And I think it, it, it's helpful because in our world and even within the church the word doctrine sometimes 
is seen in a very negative light, and we certainly don't want to downplay doctrine at all. So I, I, I appreciate that. But the picture then, which I think you've started to give us here, the picture for the doctrine, the teaching, the word, is clothing, and particular types. You've mentioned crown already. You've also got pendants yeah. for your neck. What's the point of this particular picture that Solomon is giving here? Well, I'm thinking it's because it's on the head, right? Right. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Yeah. Right. Also, the the other thing I think that stands out, not only the, the location, but also the the beauty of it, the mm-hmm. wealth, the value right. of it, perhaps, right. as well. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the Septuagint translates the, the uh, pendants as a golden chain. Um, so what this means then is that the parents' teaching is true wealth. And looking a little bit ahead, that's in contrast with the stolen wealth that sinners promise and entice you with in um, 1, 13, and 14. So the most valuable things in life are free gifts from God, neither earned nor stolen, but given through the Word. Yeah, I think that that picture of the true wealth being given there by the parents already, so that you don't have to go and steal later— it reminds me of what happens in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve have already been created in the image of God, and Satan comes and tempts them to be like God, to, to steal what didn't belong to them when they already had the free gift of God, so they didn't need to take it from him. And, and not, not to mention that they think that it's going to make them wise. Right. Which really does connect in with the, the Proverbs which uh, we, are, we as creatures stand under the wisdom of God. We don't seek to put ourselves above God. So we get, the after this invitation, hear my son, this is the teaching, this is true wealth. Then Solomon puts in front of his son the enticement of these sinners. And here's another character in the book of Proverbs, a group called sinners. How do we need to understand this word sinners as Solomon is going to use it here and in other places as well? Right. I, I mean, not in every case, but here especially, you're going to, to see these real flesh and blood sinners fleshed out. You're going to be able to spot them, to identify them. And I think this is sometimes lost in us today. As Luther, Lutherans, we, we're, you know, we, we begin our confession in the service as saying, uh, you know, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. And so what sinners we are, what sinners we are, that's kind of like something that we, you know, we, we beat that drum continuously. And there's, there's a certain, there, that is absolutely true, right? We remain sinners until the day we die, when sin is finally, you know, dies with the body. But uh, Proverbs, I think, as with the rest of God's Word, doesn't have this amorphous, you know, morality in which the fact that all of us are sinners eliminates the possibility of making distinctions among types of sinners. Um, while Jesus received sinners and ate with them in order to bring them to repentance and faith in his forgiveness, Christians are called upon to be discriminating about the company that they keep. And that's very clear from this passage. So perhaps sinners, we need to understand sinners in this case, along the lines of the foolish, as we were saying earlier, that these are those who do not trust in the one true God. And then it shows, based on the way that they live, as, as we will see, these sinners particularly here that Solomon brings up are those who entice. What What's that image? Yeah. So um, entice, this word for enticing can also mean seducing in sexual context, which is certainly a theme um, at various parts of the Proverbs. Um, so the enticement by sinners here may, may allude to that theme later on um, of the seduction by the adulteress and by lady foolishness in, nine, in chapter 9. Now, in the Old Testament, physical adultery and spiritual adultery are just, you know, almost two sides of the same coin. And um, I think that the, the analogies between them um, are, are certainly pronounced um, throughout the Old Testament. And so that should be in mind here. So here we're not in dealing with sexual enticement, but it is, it is um, you know, it is leading into temptation of sorts. Certainly. So the enticement that's given in verses 11 through 14, Solomon says, if they say, and then you get this long enticement, this long invitation to participate in what these sinners are up to. So there's there's a couple of pictures here. It's It's an ambush, they're attacking the innocent. They're doing it without reason. There's theft that's certainly involved. There's an offer for for wealth. Uh, take us into 
these these invitations, these enticements that are given by the sinners, what do they want Solomon's son, the reader of Proverbs, what do they want him to do? So, um, of course, one one element of this is strength in numbers. And so this is a gang. I mean, this is a, a, a group of sinners who've gathered together to pillage, plunder, rape, and so on and so forth. And, you know, the more people you can bring along, the, uh, the, the more, of course, strength you have. Also, within these sort of communities, you know, more more numbers equates to more kind of glory for the leader, right? Um, and then there's also something just awful about the uh, what Satan Satan is always trying to do is just get more people dragged down with him. And you know, there's the misery loves company, right? Um, and and so he's constantly trying to get people to 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 gather together and perpetrate all sorts of shame and vice. So a, a gang is being gathered here for all sorts of shame and vice, great shame and vice, as Luther says in the Catechism, ambushing the innocent without reason. There's no—this is just— Senseless violence. —for a show of, yeah. of some kind, just to, to show brute strength, brute force. Some of this is not all that different than some of the things we saw in the book of Judges, honestly. No, no. So you've got that. And then verse 12, there's, there's one of those words, at least as it's translated in the ESV, that I think is always worth a moment of explanation. It says, like Sheol— let us swallow them, swallow the innocent alive. What is Sheol? What's the picture here? Right. So Sheol can, in the Old Testament, simply mean death, death in the grave. So to go down to Sheol can just simply be to perish. But it's also oftentimes got a stronger force. And it's, so it's the Old Testament word for hell. And, um, you know, there are passages in Proverbs that emphasize it being a place of spiritual and eternal death for the damned. Now, there, it you do have to, to recognize that some interpreters have tried to make the argument that Sheol is just a place for all the dead in the same way that Hades was for the Greeks. Um, and so they, they, they then make this move that the Old Testament doesn't teach that there's any afterlife. But this is clearly not the case. Many passages can prove it. Um, Proverbs itself speaks of the hope of the, resur- of the righteous beyond the grave. And then, of course, Christians recognize this as the resurrection on the last day. So there's the offer. This is what we're going to do. We're going to wait to ambush the innocent without reason, swallow them up as if they've gone down into the grave. But we're going to do this for benefit to ourselves is the invitation. We're going to find all kinds of precious goods. These are the stolen goods that you were talking about earlier in contrast to the wealth that's being given. So throw in your lot among us. And then the last line in particular, and feel free to comment on on any of that in between, but the last line in particular is what's striking to me, that we will all have one purse. Yeah. Sounds like a great deal. We're all going to participate in this ambush, steal all the things, and then we're going to split it up evenly. Yeah, it it sounds like a terrific lie, doesn't it? Yes. Well, I mean, there's no honor among thieves. No, no, not at all. And... um you know, and I really, when I read this one purse, it, it brought to mind the passage from John 12. Judas Iscariot, one of his Jesus' disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, um, you know, Judas is not in a band of thieves, necessarily but we do see if if uh you know among the disciples of our lord you've got someone reaching into the uh, the till certainly uh, the same thing is going to happen among thieves i think I, I think i brought this up at one point during the book of judges too but it, it's this happens in in multiple movies or television shows probably books too that you'll you'll have one character who's, who's perhaps a bit shady and he's talking to generally it's the person who's a bit more heroic the the protagonist of the account and this, this one character will tell the protagonist, don't trust anyone. And generally that's a sign that the person who just said it is the person who's not to be trusted. And so this is, I mean, this is one of those cases where the thing that I appreciate is the way that the wisdom that we get from Scripture just matches up with, as you said, empirical evidence. We don't need that as Christians. We've got the Word. But it is always a... a a very, it's just a supportive thing to see how God's Word does prove itself to be true right. within our experience. Yeah, absolutely. So go ahead, Pastor Rob. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say that, you know, we see in this section the connection again with the Ten Commandments. Mm. Seventh Commandment, stealing. Ninth and Tenth Commandments, coveting. So um, just as Dr. Luther, when he's commenting on the Psalms or introducing each of the Psalms, will say, this Psalm goes with the First Commandment and the Second Petition, and, you know, we could do the same thing with sections of Proverbs. I think that the connection to, to Judas is something to throw in your lot among us. We all have one purse, that he was one who was stealing. And then you think about the way that he does betray our Lord, that he does so for a sum of money, almost almost as if Judas was listening to the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, as those who are inviting Judas to throw his lot in with them. Right. Look, we all have one purse. Yep. And then the way that it ends for Judas, I think, and we'll get to this too, but I think it almost mirrors what Solomon lays out in his admonition to his son to avoid this, that it all ends in destruction. And as it turns out, Judas, well, how do, he doesn't get to share in what the scribes, the Pharisees, they end up leaving him on his own. Right. They deal with it yourselves, they yep. tell him. Judas ends up being a very tragic example of all of this being put into place. I think, yeah. Very much so. Hmm. Yeah. So let's let's go in into the verses fifteen through nineteen. After Solomon lays out the enticement of these sinners, here's their invitation. Look, it sounds great. We're gonna sit in ambush, we're gonna steal everything, we're gonna share it all, and the plunder will be sitting on top of the heap. Solomon says, My son, don't do it. And and we get now the picture again. I mean, think of these various pictures. We've got the picture of clothing. We've got the picture of entrapment, of stealing. Now we get the picture of two ways. And this is another common feature. I don't think we mentioned this at the beginning. This is a common feature of wisdom literature, the idea of two ways. We've talked about wisdom versus folly. Take us into the first part of these verses, 15 and following. Yeah, 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Again, this very much, you know, this parallel construction Mm -hmm. Um, This really reminded me of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And need I point out that law there is Torah, Torah, right? The two ways. There's either the way of the Torah, the following of the Lord's word, fear, love, and trust in God above all things, or the way of the wicked, the way of foolishness, Rejection of the word. I think the the talk of two ways sometimes makes Lutherans nervous, I think, Pastor Roth. And the reason I think it makes Lutherans nervous sometimes is because it talks about choosing one or the other sometimes. So in 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 my own experience, this one comes I know you use the one year lectionary, but we use the three year lectionary here in Smithville. And in in the three year lectionary, one of the old testament readings, I can't remember where it shows up, is from Deuteronomy thirty. And Oh, every time you, you read this, it's like, oh, I don't know if I like that, but it's God's Word. So uh, Deuteronomy 39, uh, where do I want to start reading? Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Okay, there's the two ways, life or good, life and good versus death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess." Now, here, here comes the verse. Mm-hmm. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. So choose. Sure. Choose the narrow door, not the wide mm-hmm. path. How, yep. how do we understand these properly, Pastor Roth? Right. Well, I mean, Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So the starting point is our adoption by grace, our um, calling by the Holy Spirit, uh, enlightening us with his gift, sanctifying, keeping us in the true faith. As enlightened and sanctified Christians who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, we are then empowered to make godly choices and decisions. And indeed, our formula of Concord talks about how we can cooperate with the work of the Spirit 
although in great weakness. We always want to make that concession, but nonetheless, we do cooperate. By the way, in the hymn, Jesus, Priceless Treasure, it does say, Jesus is my choice. That's, that, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's, that's, I mean, to say, you know, I love the Lord with all my heart or something like that, as so many of the Psalms do, or Lord, thee I love with all my heart as the hymn does. According to our new man, that is the truth. We still have that old sinful Adam pulling us down. But according to our new man, we do love the Lord's word. We love his law even. And we don't look at it as just a negative thing. It's rather the way of life and blessing. Right. And, and so, I mean, I think that's a helpful way to understand it. The The other thing that comes to my mind is in the small catechism, the fourth part of holy baptism, mm-hmm. where, where we talk about the daily drowning of the old Adam and rising, the new, the new man arising to live in righteousness and purity before God. And that, that is a reality for us as Christians. And so we don't want to flee from that kind of language. But to put these two ways and, and honestly say, which which will you choose? Which way will you walk? And to speak the way that the scriptures speak in this in this sense, and not to be afraid of that kind of language. So choose life. Right, absolutely. Yeah, because we run the risk of sawing off a large portion of the Lord's teaching if right. we completely avoid that sort of language. Yeah, the Lord's Torah, his, his doctrine that yeah. he wants us to have and to hold on to, and that does give us life. We don't need to be afraid of, of speaking the way the scriptures speak. We never should be afraid of speaking the way the scriptures speak. So here you've got these two ways in Proverbs chapter 1. Solomon says, don't walk in their way, keep your foot, and then he describes where their way leads. What's what's the picture that he paints as he talks about the way that these sinners would lead his son? Yeah, their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Again, this is very earthy and concrete. You can see what sort of people these are. They're the ones who are going to go out and you know, riot and pillage and plunder and loot and shed innocent blood. So um, it, it's, it's not difficult to identify who these sinners are that we are to avoid. It's also very interesting that this verse, verse 16, is almost identical to Isaiah 59, verse 7. And uh, Dr. Steinman, who wrote the Concordia Commentary on Proverbs, thinks that Isaiah was, was working with um, Solomon's language here and perhaps even borrowing Solomon's language and and this very interesting that he, he said it helps confirm that Proverbs 1 through 9 was already a part of the book of Proverbs when Hezekiah's men started adding Proverbs from Solomon to the book in chapters 25 to 29. So, again, this, this helps corroborate that Proverbs and the superscription in Proverbs 1.1 is, is not, you know, just made up later. But this is actually the words of Solomon. That's, a, that's, that's always interesting as a, a side note. Just to, Some would take those things and try to— make, I mean, all kinds of trouble with the scriptures and invent all kinds of different sorts of editing that we would not hold to. But to see how those two things go together, Solomon writing this, you know, around 1900s BC, Isaiah coming later in the 700s mm-hmm. BC, right. to see how, I mean, it's, it's just, again, encouraging right. to see those evidences within the scriptures that it's not like Isaiah was making stuff up either. He's knowing the scriptures, he's reading the scriptures, he's making use of them in his preaching then in the 700s BC. That's right. So, Pastor Roth, then the the picture we get in verses 17 and following is this net that's spread for a bird. What's, what's the image there, and then how does Solomon take that and apply it to these sinners and what awaits them? Well, there's a couple ways you could look at the, the net. Um, one is that you could spread it uh, you could have it bundled up, the net, and then you could spread it out by throwing it so it expands and captures the birds um, on, on the ground. Or you could also spread it out on the ground, and then after the birds land on it, you could pull it together and cinch it with a drawstring. So, um, but, but neither of those methods is going to work if the bird sees the net in time to escape from it. And so here the idea is that the gang members can't see the very obvious trap that they're setting for themselves. So Solomon's actually using some irony here, depicting them as ambushing themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the this is the folly and stupidity of unbelief. Right, so the, the picture is turned. The ambush that was set by these sinners in the beginning now is actually set for themselves. And I think this is a theme that we see elsewhere in the Scriptures, that the Lord will use evil to defeat itself. Or he simply lets evil run its course because this is the way evil works. One example that we looked at recently within the book of Judges 
is the example of Midian as Gideon defeats them in Judges chapter, oh, that's in seven where that happens, where Gideon's got his 300 men and he's surrounding the army of Midian, but it really is Midian that ends up defeating itself. And this is a, a picture that we see throughout the scriptures where the Lord simply either directs it or he just lets the evil run its course and it ends up destroying itself. And only is there security found, this is maybe getting tomorrow's text a little bit, but the security is only found in Christ. That's where the evil has no no ability to destroy or hurt, but the evil ends up turning on itself. And so you see there not only the irony of these sinners who are caught by their own ambush, but then how Solomon sets his son up and all who would listen to see that net ahead of time. Yep. And so not jump into that same exactly. trap. And yeah, it's also interesting to see how, to go to quote Proverbs elsewhere, pride goes before the fall. And so this unbelief and iniquity also is a form of pride, self-exaltation over others, and it is going to lead to a fall at some point. Now, the last verse that we've got for today, verse 19, really ties this to the matter of greed, uh, seventh commandment issues. If I had to pick one commandment particularly, this matter of greedy for unjust gain, what does it end up doing? It ends up taking away the life of its possessors. The the rich fool in Luke 12 comes to mind who who builds bigger barns for all of his stuff, and then the next day his life is taken from yeah. him. Exactly. And Jesus introduces that parable by saying, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Rather, life consists in the life of Christ. So, Pastor Roth, there's the the more, well, we've got the negative and positive pictures both. We've got about two minutes here on the morning. We've talked about quite a bit of things. We've talked about nuclear family issues, and we've talked about wealth and sinners. Help us to tie all this together and point us, as we said at the very beginning, point us to Christ for us. So I, I'm seeing, again, this, this verse talks about how the uh, covetousness and greed takes away the life of its possessors. And we saw that example with Judas, who as a betrayer, um, and uh, of Jesus himself, joins in with a gang of sinners who were greedy for the innocent blood of Jesus. And these are examples of people who didn't heed the instruction of Proverbs 1. I mean, these are all Jews, right? They knew the Proverbs. Uh, they knew in advance. And so that shows the folly of unbelief. We're warned completely in advance to avoid these things like the plague. And the two ways are given. Choose life, choose life, choose life, not death. Now, at the same time, the, pro- the, the Proverbs that we've studied today have also done a great job of exposing the sin of our own hearts and the sin in our own lives. And so it, is, um, it exposes our need for a Redeemer. And it's through the taking away of Jesus' life by Judas, by the other sinners, that we are in fact redeemed from all of our sins against God's law. And then we're given new life in him under his kingdom in everlasting righteousness, innocence, blessedness, and wisdom. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us this morning with Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. What does wisdom look like? We're going to see that picture throughout the book of Proverbs. Listen, hear your father's instruction. Listen to that doctrine that God gives you that points you to Christ crucified and risen for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.